0: Welcome to Satsang.
1: Hello, Vishrant. Can you please talk about the topic, living in the unknown?
0: Okay. So most people think that they know what's going to happen next because they project a little bit into the future. They think that uh, when they uh, get out of bed, they're going to go to the toilet, go to the kitchen or go somewhere. They think if they get into their car, they're going to arrive at their destination. They, and this is a projection, it's not a reality. But all ego-based people live pretty much in projections to some degree people who have practiced mindfulness, being present to what is real rather than present to their minds, tend to live in more reality, but most people live in projections of what they think is going to happen next, and that makes them feel safe. But the truth is, they are not safe uh, because they don't really know what's going to happen next. The sage, on the other hand, doesn't live in projection. The sage lives in the moment, present to what is real, beingness, and if in the world, what's happening out here. The interest in uh, what the mind is doing drops away because it's prison, it's lower consciousness. Living as beingness is freedom from that mind. And the quest for the seeker is to live as beingness instead of live as an ego, which is simply a bunch of thoughts with reference points making up a somebody that doesn't really exist. But this somebody that doesn't really exist projects to the future, thinking that the future that it projects is real and feeling safe as a result. The sage doesn't have this projection, so the sage is stepping into the unknown knowingly every movement because the projection's not there. And so living in the unknown is what all human beings and all animals do, but they don't think that's true. They think they do know because they believe their projections about what they think is going to happen a few seconds or a few minutes or a few hours or a few days later. This is simply not real. There is nothing real about projections. The same as there's nothing real about memories. They're imagined and they can be altered. Same as projections can be altered. And so the quest for the seeker in a lot of ways is to get out of the dream And into reality the mind can go to no mind which means it's not thinking it's not projecting it's not remembering it's not analyzing it's just there but it's not doing anything and the sage lives most of the time just in no mind no projections no memories just being present here to beingness and present to the world if if they're out the quest for the seeker is to get out of the projections, get out of the prison, be able to step into the unknown, knowing it's the unknown and being okay with it being the unknown continuously. Now, without these projections that human beings have, ego-based human beings have, they'd probably be pretty frightened because the unknown is what elicits fear response or reaction because when the unknown presents itself, we might die, we might get hurt. And so the primal programming defensive uh, mechanism of the mind throws up fear. And of course this fear locks people in lower consciousness because it's a dream, it's a projection also of a future that is not safe, something that's gonna happen that's not good, but it is also not real. One of the things after awakening is all fear has gone. There's no fear anymore. It's gone, doesn't come back. It's called abaya, fearlessness, because the survival mechanism, the I and the survival mechanism of the mind has surrendered unconditionally to support enlightenment. In this unconditional surrender, survival mechanism has dropped so fear disappears so there's no projection not forward of something nasty that's going to happen so the sage is constantly in the unknown knowing the unknown and being okay with the unknown whereas ego-based people quite often get frightened with the unknown and go to lower consciousness as a result of that projected fear so it's very beautiful to be in the unknown Stepping into the unknown and people say, well, how do I do that? Well, you used to do it up until the age of four or five years of age. You used to live in the unknown because you hadn't developed a mind yet. That was constantly projecting a later that wasn't living in memory. That wasn't constantly analyzing what was going on. You were just present to what was real out here and you were stepping into the unknown. But then you developed a mind that went to school, got programmed, you got programmed how to live in your head, analyzing and uh, working (laughs) working everything out so you could make a living or whatever. And then most people stay like that till they die. Living in their heads to a large degree. This is a prison. You don't want to live there. So getting out of the prison is really important. And The way to get out is by becoming present to what is real. Meditation is being present to what is real. Now, whether that's formal meditation of watching the breath, sitting, or meditation of just being mindful of what's happening around you, because that's also meditation because you're present to what's real. Both these methodologies work to help you reclaim reality from the dream that you found yourself lost in. And it's lovely, because as soon as you are okay with the unknown, you go back to wonderment like you did when you were a little boy or a little girl. The sage, in a lot of ways, lives in wonderment. Everything's fresh, everything's new because there's no projections. Everything's alive and vital because there's no projections. The quest for higher consciousness, to get out of the mind and know yourself as truth. Any questions? any statements any challenges to this teaching today
1: the first question is as follows i love the idea of living in the unknown but the reality of it feels very different a lot of fear comes up why is this and how did you deal with it
0: oddly enough i just answered that question but i'll answer it again Fear comes up because it's what's meant to come up when the unknown presents itself. Fear protects us. It's our survival mechanism for the body and the mind. And without fear as children, we would probably die. But as as adults, we don't really need fear because we know what's dangerous and we know how to be careful. But fear is still there anyway because it is a, a primary program for defense of the body and the mind. And so it comes up automatically and unconsciously, simply as a reaction to the unknown. For me, (laughs) how I learned to live with fear, I wasn't really interested in ever being controlled by the fear of things. First of all, I did understand quite clearly from a young age that fear wasn't real. It's a projection. It's a projected uh, dangerous future in some way. And with that understanding, I also understood that fear gains its power by our resistance to what we're frightened of happening. Without that resistance, fear doesn't have power. And so I recall from quite a young age, I, I think at the age of 10, I got my C-class license for diving with um, underwater equipment, aqualungs, scuba gear. And I was already diving uh, around Rotnest Island and Penguin Island. And I already knew there was a lot of sharks around because <laughs> I'd seen them. And one of the things that I was frightened of were sharks because well, it's known that they eat people or they maul them. And so that fear had the potential of stopping me from being a diver as a boy. And so as a boy, before I got in the water, I would allow myself to be eaten by sharks. In other words, I didn't support the fear of being eaten, I made it okay if it happened. And in that non-resistance to what I was frightened of, fear lost its power. And so I discovered that fear could be defeated by in my mind, allowing the worst to occur, making it okay. And so I dived and Well, I died for another 30 years um, in in shark-infested waters. But I always had that as a backup to deal with any kind of fear that came into my life, recognizing clearly that fear, first of all, is not real. And secondly, it can be dismounted, dismounted by allowing the worst to occur. Whatever the worst might be, if you make it okay that that happens, fear loses its power. So I didn't allow fear to rule my life because if you let fear rule your life, you don't have a life. You actually play it too carefully. You don't do this, you don't go there, you don't talk about this, you don't see that person. <laughs> fear is not a good master. It's best to actually step through fear. And and squeeze the juice out of life.
1: The next question. You were talking about fearlessness as a result of awakening. Is this state possible for me, living as an ego?
0: I don't I don't think so. That's not been my experience. My experience is I did experience fear up until awakening, and that was 21 years ago, and I have not experienced any form of fear since. Basically, what happens in awakening is instead of living as an I, you start living as presence or beingness, and presence and beingness is not affected by anything. What we are, who we are, is not affected by anything, it is free. So no fear for 21 years. But before that, I didn't support fear. I wasn't interested in having that kind of life where I didn't do things because of fear. I was interested in really getting into life, celebrating life to the max. And so whatever I was frightened of, I would just make it okay that that occurred and disengage the power of
2: fear.
1: I I also scuba dive and in the water, I don't tend to think about sharks or other underwater threats, even though I know they're there. Some may say that I'm just being stupid. Is this a good way to avoid fear?
0: Yeah, denial is a great way to avoid fear. That works too. Just deny that there's anything there that's going to eat you. (laughs) With with myself, um, I I came from a family where my father was a scuba diver and a diver, and he was a hunter, an underwater hunter. And so was I. And I hunted sharks uh, because they're very good eating. Because up until uh, I was uh, 28, I was uh, a fish eater and a meat eater. I became a vegetarian at the age of 28, but until then, I hunted, and I hunted sharks um, because they were good. They were good food. If you, um... <laughs> I look back on that with regret now, but that's just the way it was back then. And so I had to face the fear of sharks because I was actually I, I saw them, I was aware of them and I was hunting them. And so I couldn't just deny that they weren't there, particularly around Rottnest Island, West End or the Barolos Islands. There's so many sharks there. To deny them is uh, to be very much out of touch with the reality of what's in the water out there. But if you want to use denial to uh, avoid fear, well, if that works for you, go ahead. It <laughs> It could get you in trouble. <laughs>
1: What does it look like to truly embrace the unknown? Well,
0: it's not that there's anyone to embrace the unknown. It's like there's a projection there. There's nobody here. So there's no embracing anything. There's just really a non-reaction to everything. Embracing is actually a doing and unconditional surrender is a non-doing. And it's very hard for the ego to understand unconditional surrender. It keeps projecting that there's something to do, but there's unconditional surrender is the end. There's nothing to do, it's over, it's a full stop. The story has ended. But because the ego has no reference points to understand that, it's difficult, unless it's a direct knowing through Satori. And then all of a sudden, wow, no fear, no projections, nothing happening, and not even a thought.
1: Next, Arun would like to ask a question.
3: Arun. Hello Vish. Hello. Hi. Uh, My question is, it's a follow-up to the question that I was asking yesterday. Um, So I haven't really spent much time witnessing my thoughts. Um, I just kind of tend to either try and go to that ambient awareness kind of feeling or I'll just watch my breath. And you were saying it, suggesting yesterday that, witnessing thoughts is the way to deconstruct the mind is that what you were suggesting
0: this was osho's teaching and it's also the buddha's teaching to witness the mind uh, whatever the mind's doing but also to witness everything else in other words develop detachment from the mind so there's a witnessing of all things but if we don't witness the mind we don't see it clearly and we don't see the obstacles that it's created in the way of higher consciousness Mm. okay but what you're saying is uh (laughs) i got a feeling that what you're looking for is relief from the mind because when you witness uh the breath or you witness footfalls or you witness something else um you're actually getting relief from the mind's chatter and that's nice to do that's nice to get relief from the mind but if you want to see through the mind and you do need to see through the mind to raise your consciousness levels you have to witness the mind as well.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think, I think you're dead right. So I've kind of, <laughs> the, the schedule that I set up myself on a normal day is um, when I have to use my mind for work, I try and be as focused with as few distractions as possible. And then at the moment, I'm using just like a normal alarm timer. Like I'm going to focus on work for X number of hours. And then and the alarm goes off then I tell myself, okay, I'm going to either going to wash the breath or try to go ambient and not have anything to do with the mind at all. Yeah. But invariably, chatter comes in. And the more I've been using my mind as the day goes along, the more forceful chatter comes in to the periods when I try not to witness the mind.
0: Yeah. So you, you watch the chatter. Um, I'm not suggesting that you do anything with the mind except watch it. And that means not analyzing either and not interfering. The interfering can come later, <laughs> but until we see what the mind's up to, we can't see what beliefs it's supporting. We can't see what hidden agendas it's playing with. We can't see it's defense systems because they hide defense systems, protect themselves with other defense systems. So we, we stay locked in lower consciousness.
3: Okay. So you suggest not doing anything with it just yet. Just watching the thoughts that come.
0: Yeah. Just, well, witnessing is not a doing, it's just Mm -hmm. witnessing. Um, the doing comes later. It's like, uh, so I used to meditate watching my breath and after I'd finished watching my breath for an hour or so, I'd get a lot of insights afterwards. Now, I'd watch those insights. My mind would witness itself because it had that silent witness, which was a part of itself witnessing, and it would mm. witness itself. But because it was witnessing, it was very honest because it was non judgmental. And it got to see how corrupt my own mind was in the way it protected itself and its opinions with uh, little white lies. Because oh, wow. ah, the mind is a very tricky, tricky piece of equipment. But when you develop this silent witness, you get to see it all. And because you see it all, you can start to undo it the bits that are in the way of higher consciousness. And you can also start to uh, see other people way more clearly. To the degree you see yourself is to the degree you see others.
3: Prior to your awakening, how did you know when the insights that you were getting, how could you differentiate them between? Um, something egoic that that you just had to witness versus something more truthful, like an actual insight.
0: Oh, it didn't really matter. I just witnessed him. Look, when you Uh, say you're watching, you're, you're a doc, you're a doctor. So you watch people to to diagnose, right? And that's what you're actually doing. You're watching diagnose, but you're not doing the diagnosis at the same time. You're just watching first. So in witnessing, you're witnessing your own mind like like, like a therapist watching, just watching and waiting. And after a while, all the pennies start to drop as to what that mind's up to. We tend to believe our minds, but the truth is our minds aren't so straight. They're a bit dishonest. They'll protect themselves with omissions and with white lies. And because they protect themselves, we can't take them apart. But if we can see what they're doing, we can. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I, I had completely neglected doing any thought witnessing because essentially, what happens whenever, it, whenever thoughts come up is I just get very entangled in as in I start I start analysing them and trying to break them down.
0: And that's how we were programmed at school. We were programmed to analyse our th- everything. Basically, that's problem solve. But that's not what works in this game. What works in this game is witnessing. Like. You can, you, you're with a client, you can just watch that client for a while and after a while you'll understand what's going on. It, you're witnessing to some degree without analyzing, you're just watching. Yeah. Now, that, that particular function can be turned on to the mind where we just witness the mind without analyzing. Yeah. And we diagnosing. Yeah,
3: not I tried it yesterday after I asked you the questions and it had a different, it felt different. It, yeah.
0: It, oh, Yeah. yeah it's best if it's like you're watching someone else's mind.
3: Yeah. They seem to come and yeah, there was no resistance as they, they came. And in the past, as a thought would come, I would usually try and apply logic to it and say, why is this, what's the root cause of this thought? Like, why is this thought coming up? Whereas yesterday I just let it come. And then I noticed after a period of time, if I just tried to just stay watching it and not try to do anything with it, it would just go away it would eventually come again later but it had this characteristic of coming and going which i'd not really
0: felt before yeah, yeah. so this was osho's main methodology towards enlightenment witnessing
3: mm. so then a follow-up question to that is in the past with thoughts if i couldn't try and apply logic to try and get to the root cause of it i've been using self-inquiry so i'll say if a thought comes up, I'll say, well, yeah, this thought might be really troubling me at the moment, but to whom is this thought coming to? And then that kind of has a centering sort of effect where the answer is, I don't really, I leave it as an open-ended question, but the answer to the open-ended question is, I don't know who. And then the question that follows that is who, who is asking this question and that the who, who, who centers down to this, I, don't know who i am basically is that a way of witnessing thought or
0: no no that's self inquiry and that's advaita vedanta style of self inquiry asking the question and not answering it um, which has the potential of turning that that's aware of the mind back to itself and that can give you a satori or it can create full awakening Uh, but that's a whole different thing altogether than witnessing the mind um, okay. so I started developing a silent witness when I was quite young to my mind because I was very interested in stopping worry and victim-orientated thinking, but to stop worry and victim oriented thinking, you actually have to have a witness of the mind that sees it happening. And then you have to have another program once it's seen that stops it. And if you have a look at that, that's just discipline. You witness mm. and you stop. Two programs. One's witnessing, the silent witness that just witnesses. Second program stops it. And that's actually how I stopped worry. And it's how I stopped victim orientated thinking.
3: So, your second programming of stopping, how did you stop
0: it? Well, you, you, you treat it like a terrorist. You give it no, you, you don't bargain with it at all. You don't analyze it. You don't understand it. You just stop it. And so, um, Every time worry occurred in my mind and I spotted it because it was seen, it would stop. I would stop it. I wouldn't entertain it at all. It was over because I did not want to continue the program of worrying. Mm. Okay. So I don't
3: So, So. yep. I was just going to ask. So, so, Thus far, I haven't practiced witnessing my thoughts. When thoughts come up, I either go to the body, so the breath, let's say, or I will ask the question, to whom does this thought arise? And both those practices have been good thus far to not have the stream of thoughts continue. They'll continue to some degree, but in general, it stops. So Uh, they both.
0: They're giving you relief from the mind. But then again, drugs can do that as well. (laughs) You know, Mm. you're using a coping mechanism and it works. It gives you relief from the mind temporarily. But if you really want to raise your consciousness levels, you actually have to watch the mind. You have to witness it. Yeah. Okay.
3: Yeah, that that was the essential nature of my question, which was. Also what I was asking you yesterday, I guess some of the, the you know, the, the different things that I've been reading have been suggesting that because the mind is not real, if you don't pay it attention, then in time it will go away because you're not giving it attention. Yeah but, but you're, you're m- suggesting that in the marketplace it's different.
0: Yeah, very much so. The people who have stated yeah. that are people who live in ashrams or monasteries or caves, they're not people who have to live in the marketplace and have families and do a job. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that was my question. And and the funniest thing about these sort of people is quite often they'll give people uh, advice on relationships as well, even though they've never had one themselves. Mm. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we're in the marketplace and I've actually found a way to be in the marketplace and wake up. And that's what I'm trying to teach. But it, it's, not sort of, it's not the same as waking up in a monastery or ashram or a cave. It's very different. We actually have to surrender a great deal more. We have to accept a great deal more. And we have to witness our minds so we can remove the things that we need to surrender. Otherwise, yeah. we're not, we can't wake up in the marketplace and stay awake because there's so many distractions.
3: Yeah. But when, when you say re- remove the things in our minds, you're, it's not actually a, a analysis-based deconstruction or anything like that, is it? It's just watching it and then it transforms itself and goes, well, like, how does it go away? If I, you, you I guess I'm just so used to problem solving.
0: <laughs> <You>. <laughs> okay, so, so I'll give you an example. Say we, you have a belief, and this is a very common belief, a belief that my partner shouldn't betray me. Now, if I have a belief that my partner shouldn't betray me, I have an expectation on top of that that she shouldn't. Now, if that expectation is not met and my partner betrays me and I'm holding on to that belief, there's a very good chance I'm going to go into contraction and resistance if she does betray me, right? Yeah. I don't have that belief. I removed it because I'm not interested in contracting full stop. I'm not interested in closing ever because it would be against my heart and also against awakening. Okay. So when you
3: removed it, did you remove it? was it like just a decision. Okay. When this sort of situation happens again, I'm not going to react in this way or.
0: No, I analyzed it. Um, I had a look at the belief and I had, I had a look at the belief that my partner shouldn't betray me. And then I went in the big picture for her life, my life and existence. How do I really know that she shouldn't betray me? How do I really know? Yeah in her life stream and what she needs to do with her life and my life stream and all that, how do I really know she shouldn't have betrayed me? And the answer has to come back, well, I don't know. Now, the moment we throw doubt into any belief, it loses its power. Okay. Yeah. But while we hang on that that belief is absolutely categorically true, we're likely to get caught in the in the contraction and the resistance when the expectation's not met. Yeah.
3: Okay. So let's say prior to your awakening, you're witnessing your thoughts, and a thought comes up that you don't want your partner to betray you. Then, in that moment, whilst you're witnessing, hang on, future, hang on,
0: hang on. We got I got to, to create you there. It's not that I want my partner to betray me. I just have a belief, I, have a, I don't have the belief that she shouldn't.
3: Right, okay. Hmm. So let's say you're witnessing your thoughts and something comes up that causes you to contract in the direction that makes you realize you don't have the belief that your partner shouldn't necessarily betray you. Do you then apply the logic that you just explained to me, in that moment in time or do you like write it down and then try and logic your way through it later
0: or here's how i learned it if i contract over anything i will have a look or i would have had a look at what belief system that was in play that supported that contraction
3: immediately
0: immediately because i was not interested in contracting again over the same belief
3: but then you come out of the witness, you go into your mind to try and analyze this, right?
0: That's right. You're using the mind to undo the mind because belief systems are what keeps people in lower consciousness to a large degree because every time we contract, we go into lower consciousness. Every time we go into resistance, we go into lower consciousness. And so if we have a heap of belief systems that uh, when they don't get met, take us into lower consciousness, the work is to undo those belief systems. Yeah. And a lot of the time that's done through acceptance. Acceptance, yeah. this is how life is. Acceptance yeah. of this, how this person is. Acceptance. Yes, yes.
3: Oh, thank you very much, I really appreciate it. This is definitely what I've not been doing because I've just been doing what you initially said, which is just going to the relief of not being in the mind.
0: Aha. You're a good good listener, Haroon, and you've picked up a lot now. (laughs) Yes. Thanks, Fish. Thanks, Haroon.
1: Next question is as follows. It seems that I can maintain a silent witness while I'm sitting still in meditation or when I'm in satsang. How do I keep this silent witness? while I'm in conversations or involved in work?
0: Right. The only way to keep the silent witness is to practice. There is no other way. There's no story I can tell you that will help it stay. There's nothing you can do that can make it stay except to practice. And so you, dev- you watch your mind when you're in Satsang same, you watch your mind when you're in meditation, you watch the mind as often as you can until it becomes a habit, and you have a silent witness that watches the mind away. But that's only done through practice. And what happens as a result of that is you have detachment from the mind. So instead of getting caught in reactivity, you're more likely to respond to situations. Uh, when we don't have a silent witness, when we're caught in the story of our mind, we are probably in lower consciousness, and we're probably into re- we're probably reacting rather than responding. You have to have a look and see.
1: I know logically that I could die any moment, but most of the time I forget and live as if I had a future or a tomorrow. What makes one recognise impermanence at a deeper level?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, Most people do think they're going to be here later. Uh, They don't have a clear, clean understanding of impermanence, and as a result, they postpone an awful lot of things because they think they're going to have a later to do it. And it's just not true. That's just another dream they're having. There is only now. What brought it home for me very strongly was in my teenage years, I got to witness uh, death firsthand. I witnessed a baby drowning in a swimming pool. And I witnessed two young people um, come through the windscreen of a car and, and, and die on the road in front of me and I was only a teenager, and it made it very clear to me that we are not permanent, that we could die at any moment. And so impermanence for me came at a young age, the understanding of impermanence. But as a result of that, I didn't waste any of my life thinking that there was going to be a later. I squeezed the juice out of life because I lived quite dangerously. I didn't serve fear and I always figured that I probably wouldn't last another year. Now you think about it. If you feel that you're not going to last another year, how do you live your life? Well, that's how I've lived my life for the last 47 years.
1: It seems you have been living dangerously your whole life. Do you think that helped you towards higher consciousness?
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Because in living dangerously, you live in the moment because you have to be present to survive. And so I'd never been much of a dreamer. I've always loved present moment awareness. It's real to start with. If you're dreaming, if you're not present to reality and you're living a dangerous life, you will die reasonably quickly.
1: Can you reason your way out of fear using rational thinking and logic?
0: Maybe. You have to try it and see. (laughs) It's up to you. Try it and see.
1: The next question. If looking for intellectual knowledge doesn't help towards higher consciousness, what is the correct use of Buddhist sutras and other spiritual
0: texts? Yeah, so they're there, and it's a bit like this teaching here today. Um, I don't want anyone to believe me. I don't want anyone to take what I say as gospel. I want you to have a look for yourself. I'm just an arrow pointing in a certain direction and all the sutras are the same. They're just arrows pointing a certain direction for you to find out for yourself. And when you find out for yourself through your own direct experience, then it's your knowing and it's real. Up until then, it's borrowed knowledge and it should be in the maybe column because you don't really know. Anything that we put down as a belief is a prison. We're better off not having beliefs. And so for most of my life, uh, anything that has been taught to me or said to me from uh, my spiritual teachers has been in the maybe column. But it was also an invitation for me to investigate and see if there was anything in it. And so I see the sutras as helpful. I see the teachings as helpful in just pointing to where you need to look to find out for yourself yourself. Don't ever
2: believe anybody.
1: It seems to me that you have a lot of knowledge, but you have no problem saying that you don't know. Is that just an attitude that you choose?
0: Heck no. I don't know. (laughs) It's not an attitude. It's the truth. I don't know. You think you know, you think you know this, you think you know that. When you know yourself as every particle in the universe, there's no way you can comprehend what you're knowing. You absolutely know you don't know. How it was all formed, you don't know. Why it's all formed, you don't know, not really, it's just there. You know self as truth, but that's very limited in the knowing. People think they're a somebody, so they think they know where they've been, what they've been doing, where they're going. Well, first of all, we're not a somebody that's ever been anywhere or is ever going anywhere. We are pure beingness, and we are here now. And when awareness turns on itself, the mind cannot truly comprehend what is being seen. So it goes, I don't know.
1: I've been practicing dropping arrogance for years, but I still fail. Why is it difficult to have the humility to say, I don't know?
0: (laughs) Arrogance. Look, humility comes as a result of a lack of I, a lack of the ego. So, The ego can't really do humility. If it tries to do humility, it'll just be an act. Humility comes when the ego drops away. When we move into service for the what the way of the heart, and we move into service of others and we start dropping our story because our story is in the way of our service, we are becoming humble because there is less of us in the picture. True humility isn't about living an austere life, being poor, not having anything, not bragging. No, it's about having less I. And the more in service you are to heart, the less I you have. So there's a natural humility. When the I tries to be humble, it is just being a fraud. True humility comes from an absence of the I.
1: Do I have a choice to just let go of my story?
0: Sure. You have a choice. Let it go. Be here now. That's best. Always best to be here now. Have your awareness here now, not on some story. The story is a dream. It's nasty. It's like a B grade movie that you watched over and over again in your head. Leave it alone. Get to what's present and real. Everything around you is present and real. What you think is not. Get real.
1: I find that my story becomes very repetitive, like Groundhog Day. How do I break that habit?
0: Wow, meditation, mindfulness training. The only way I know, actually. I used to, when I was very young, before I got into meditation, uh, ride motorbikes at high speed. And I found that riding a motorbike at high speed brings you into the moment because you can't actually think. If you think, you'll probably die. And so you're very, very present in the moment. And I fell in love with that present moment awareness. I thought at the time I'd fallen in love with motorbikes and speeding. But after I became a meditator and could find that same space, that same present moment of awareness through meditation, I realized what I was really in love with was the present moment. You want to get out of your head, meditate.
1: The next question is from Arun.
0: Hello, Arun. Hi Vish.
3: My next question is um, on a different track, when I play <clears throat> sport, I find that as things speed up up to a per- certain point, up to a certain speed, I can remain conscious of what's going on. I can witness everything that's happening as I play. but beyond a certain point, things get too fast and then I lose consciousness of what's happening, but I'm fully involved in what's going on. Um, and then as you were just talking about riding a motorbike, it reminded me of when, you know, um, when I was younger, my friends and I used to try and race each other home in our cars. And similarly, I remember beyond a certain speed, you're completely involved in what's going on, but there's no consciousness of the, the action that you're doing. Um, is there some kind of quality with where, when things really speed up, you lose the ability to stay conscious.
0: Yeah, you hadn't developed the silent witness strong enough yet, Arun. It's as simple as that. Uh, oh, okay.
3: Even, even now when I play sport, that's essentially what's happening. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah. yeah. See, I played rugby till I was 28 and did martial arts till I was 24 and raced motorcycles. But they were all endeavors to actually find that beautiful present moment that I really loved. It was exhilarating to be that firmly in the moment. Yeah. Um, And it wasn't until I became a meditator and discovered that I could find that same space in meditation that I actually dropped off some of those things. Yeah. Stopped racing motorbikes and and definitely stopped rugby. (laughs) (laughs) Rugby rugby is just licensed violence, I'm afraid.
3: Yeah. 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 Well, I find with sport, I... Like I was playing on the weekend on Sunday, for example, and there are, there are periods when I'm playing when I can be conscious of everything that's happening, including the whole surrounding, and it's quite nice. But the moment I try to continue that witnessing in other periods, and the sport requires even more um, concentration, then I actually don't function as well. I don't play as well. So then I just have to... Like stop trying to do that and just focus on the game so i can play better
0: um yeah look one of the, one so, are the first, first times i ever noticed the witness was when i actually came off my motorbike i was racing um an x u1 Tirana on kwanana freeway which is quite illegal and i got a front wheel wobble in my uh, in my bike at about 160 kilometers an hour and i put the handbrake on and the like flipped immediately and what yeah. happened to my mind is that it just went separate from everything and just witnessed yeah. the whole accident from this this absolutely silent, non-judgmental space where my body was rolling through, rolling behind the bike, which had caught on fire as it skidded along the road. And I was just witnessing the roll, witnessing the bike, witnessing everything. And so the silent witness was there, but it was forced to be there through an accident. Yeah. And that was the first time I recall noticing that I actually had a silent witness that could watch from a detached space.
3: So do you think now, say you were to race a motorcycle really fast or play rugby again, you would be able to witness the whole thing and still play with full intensity?
0: Yes, because I have developed a silent, my mind, yeah. is a, my mind doesn't talk to itself very often ever. But there is a silent witness that is witnessed that is separate or detached all the time, no matter what yeah. I'm doing, and I still ride motorcycles.
3: Yeah. <laughs> just um, oh, and another question that came to me just before is, if you know the things that we were speaking about before, where one can witness the breath or the footsteps or um, the the content the content of the mind versus self inquiry. When should one, is it best to do a little bit of each one or should one just stick to one for a period of time?
0: Uh, look, I just swapped things around as I, as I chose to. I, yeah. I meditated every day and I self-inquired every day because these are the things I like yep. doing. As far as a silent witness was concerned, that was developed as a result of meditation. Because, okay. But you've got to remember, at the same time, I studied psychology as well. I I got into psychology when I was uh, 19, and I studied it all the way through because I loved, I loved this understanding the, the, the science of the mind.
3: Yeah, 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 much the same. I found, actually, when I finished high school, wanted to do psychology, but you know, my um, parents, bless them, thought that I was too intelligent to just do psychology and so I should do medicine. Then I was drawn to psychiatry for ages, as I mentioned, here, but it's just a pill prescribing kind of profession. So yeah. yeah, here I find myself more interested in the mind once again.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, my, my interests after I left high school were psychology, uh, religion and philosophy. Mm. <laughs> they were my interests. So. And I got into all sorts of other weird things like motorbikes. But uh, yeah. there's this fascination with uh, who am I? What am I doing here? What's the purpose of life? And that that, that haunted me from a very young age. I started asking those questions when I was about 13 or 14.
3: Yeah. Mm. Thanks again,
0: Vish. Mm. Thanks, Arun. The
1: next question. When you described your motorbike accident, it sounds like, the silent witness is almost like having an out-of-body experience. Is a silent witness like having an out-of-body experience?
0: In a way, yes. It's a detached uh, witness that witnesses the mind and the body. It is like, an, you could say it's like an out-of-body experience. I don't really know what an out-of-body experience is in, in, in that the silent witness could be described as that. As far as out-of-body is are, we are not the body. We are pure beingness. And all I have to do is shut my eyes and all of this world disappears completely. We are one. We always have been. We can't be anything else. There's just a dream that keeps us seemingly separate. The dream is not real. We are one.
1: How long is the right amount of time to sit in silence each day?
0: (laughs) As long as it takes. (laughs) Sit in silence. Wow. So sitting in silence is something that someone who's pretty advanced can do. Most people begin by watching the breath and uh, bringing their awareness back to the breath when the mind comes in. And that, comes a practice that you enjoy or you don't enjoy for me i i enjoyed it because it gave me clarity and uh, insights and i i started meditating when i was actually a businessman and it just gave me clarity and insights which enabled me to be a better businessman and so my reasons for getting into meditation in the first place uh, were for business and uh, I, I loved it because I, I, I got to see things that I'd missed during the day. And I got to have the clarity to see a much bigger picture than the one I was playing. Eventually, it took me to uh, no mind and from no mind to super consciousness.
1: Does being connected to your inner intuition allow you to live in the unknown more easily
0: okay so inner inner intuition is uh, basically a survival mechanism it's part of the mind but beyond that again there's this inner knowing which knows which way to go intuition is a feeling that you get uh, for survival usually inner knowing has nothing to do with survival it just knows which way to go and the inner knowing is so quiet and so silent and so non-invasive and people think they're in touch with the inner knowing because they've got a voice in their head telling them something but the inner knowing doesn't talk in words it just knows which way to go and the sage follows the inner knowing because the sage is silent and can know the inner knowing the ego tries to override it and quite often will pretend to be the inner knowing but anything that comes in words or is pressing is not the inner knowing it's the ego or the mind trying to pretend to be the inner knowing the inner knowing is so quiet so non-invasive it's there and sometimes it's not there you just have to wait and see but it's very different from intuition Intuition has something to do with survival. Inner knowing doesn't.
1: Is a high level of trust needed in order to live in the unknown?
0: (laughs) High level of trust. We've got to look at, well, what what is trust? You know, people think, uh, well, I'll trust you if you behave in this way, and then I will trust you. That is not the sort of trust we talk about in spirituality. The sort of trust that we talk about in spirituality is more like whatever happens is meant to be happening. There is no mistakes. There is no good. There is no bad. There is just what is. That's trust. (laughs) And anything that happens is meant to happen. Otherwise, it would not happen. That is trust. And so someone who's awake has surrendered unconditionally. They basically live in trust.
1: I've always considered myself a relaxed person who doesn't need to control life. But I have moments of fear of the unknown future. What am I missing?
0: I wonder why you asked the question. What do you want? Having a relaxed mind is pretty cool. Helps you raise your consciousness levels. But what do you really want? What's your thirst?
1: To live without fear. <laughs>
0: All desires cause suffering. <laughs> There's only one desire worth having. And that's the desire to be free. The desire to know yourself as truth. There is no other desire that is worth having. That's the desire that will allow you to get free. Get out of the prison of the mind. It's the only desire worth promoting. And so the sage promotes the thirst for truth and points to the truth fear just accept fear accept everything it's best then you can be free acceptance is wonderful if practiced you get good at it if not practiced well you don't get good at it because it's not part of our primal repertoire so people aren't good at acceptance really they accept because of, which is a business deal. How about just accepting, as is, without any business deal? This is the way to higher consciousness. This is the way to knowing yourself as truth. Let go and let God. Thank you for that saying. Good to see you brave hearts here today.